Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. Welcome to season two of Let's Finally Watch This. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I am your other host, Timothy Deal. If you are new or have forgotten in the time, this is the podcast where we go through the century of movies. This is the year 2023. Mm -hmm. So we'll be doing 1903, 1913, 1923, etc., skipping decade, just watching a important movie from each year, seeing its historical context, discussing whether it's actually worth watching, um, and everything in between. Yes, and we're very excited to come back for season two. Uh, you may have noticed Nick just said that we're going to do 1903 and uh, 1913. Which are new this year. Which are relatively new. We did do... Well, they're old. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, we did a test episode last year, episode zero, where we covered 1902. But we didn't go into quite as much detail in terms of the history then, because we were still kind of figuring out our format. And also, it's funny, both the 1902 film and the 1922 film were foreign. So this time we'll be in America. We've got American movies for the our first three episodes so you'll get to hear some more about the developments of uh, what's going on here in the good old US of A which we missed last time that's right so, so we uh, missed whole like 20 years of time yeah yeah essentially I mean we we touched on some things but we're going to go a little bit more deeper now that we have a better idea what we're doing and hopefully when we get to the decades that we have uh, talked about more I'm hoping to find some some new angles we can explore yes so we'll see and we have a, a very different lineup this year than last year just different feel and we won't spoil any of that right now yes we're excited to get into some more comedies this year fewer r-rated movies toward the end which would be nice yes yes uh, but yeah, no, I think we got a, a fun lineup and I'm excited to get going. So this year, this episode is 1903, The Great Train Robbery. So Tim, before we go into the movie, can you tell us a little bit what is even happening in America with movies in 120 years ago in 1903? Well, of course, 1903, we are in the turn of the century of the 20th century. This is the dawn of a new era, both of filmmaking and of, well, lots of technology in general. Lots of new innovations going on. To put it in context, Theodore Roosevelt is president during this year, and uh, this is the year that the first teddy bears debut Nice in February. The Ford Motor Company sells its first car this year on July 23rd. It's still five years away from mass producing the Model T, um, as you may know from your history books. So automobiles are a thing, but they're not... Very magnificent Ambersons. Yes, that's right. This is a more genteel age. Yes. Uh, But yes, more horses and trains are still the main mode of transportation. And speaking of transportation, the Wright Brothers' famous flight would take place this year on December 17th. So it was a very different world. And things are just new, like lots of new things are coming, including, I guess, more and more moving pictures. That's right. Moving pictures have been a thing, of course, since the 1890s, but uh, movies are still a novelty. They're mostly being exhibited at vaudeville theaters and special events like fairs and festivals. We mentioned that before. The number of standalone movie theaters is growing, but it won't become common until there's a big boom in uh, Nickelodeons in 1906. Nickelodeon being a place where you'd see movies for a nickel. Okay. So nothing related with a kid's TV show or network. And interestingly, oftentimes, again, speaking of technology, the technology of motion pictures was promoted as much as the actual content, which is interesting. An 1896 playbill at a vaudeville theater might advertise the Vitascope, the Kinetoscope, the Mutoscope, or the Cinematograph. I guess it feels a little bit like early VR. Like, yeah. you just want to do it. It you doesn't matter ex- what, what you're watching or what you're doing. Like, it could be a roller coaster or 
science fiction, whatever. You just want to, what is this technology? Yeah, it's the experience is what they're selling, the novelty of it. And because of that, a lot of the most common form of motion picture during this period uh, were still travelogues or actualities. Travelogues being like, oh, you get to see sites at some distant location that you may never visit before, like uh, going on a, a gondola in Venice. So it's kind of like what are those things? Hold, they have the the round things that you click. Oh, the view, watch. the Viewmaster. The Viewmaster. Because they, I, we yeah. have a bunch of them in my house, and like they're like, oh, here's the seven wonders of the world. You just go through, and they're like, <laughs> here's birds, and it's I guess it's sort of like that. Yeah. Well. And even as far as in the other flip side of that was sometimes doing local events. Okay, would, interesting. Which would have the same sort of interest as like, you know, home movies now. Yep. Like, oh, there's a Chicago neighborhood. I know that place. So it's really early YouTube. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Another one that I saw talked about from this year, actually, is uh, an Edison film called Electrocuting an Elephant, where they had to put down an elephant from a nearby zoo. And so they're like, Hey, let's film that. People will want to watch it. Yeah. There's something interesting that most people don't get to see. Now they can. Uh, Not that uh, nowadays uh, the animal rights people would not (laughs) approve of that sort of thing. Did that one still exist? Probably, yeah. I mean, I don't think... They know uh, a lot of these early films don't anymore. True. But I think this one was notable enough that they do still have it. But anyway, specifically between 1904 to 1906, documentaries, these four sort of actuality things are about still about 42% of the films produced. But the appetite for narrative film is growing. This is partly because of audience interest, but also because exhibitors didn't want to have to depend on news and notable events to get people interested. You always be making a new one. You, you always want to be like, make, yeah. When's the next elephant? You know. Yeah. When's the next assassination? Come yeah. on, guys. We need more disasters. Uh, no, that you want to be able to make your own stories that people would uh, be willing to come see. So by this year, 1903, comedies comprised nearly 30% of American films, with dramatic films being only about 6%. So uh, that makes sense because comedies yeah. just, you just take a stage play and you do something silly yeah. and it, people will laugh and all that kind of stuff. I should note for this episode, in addition to Wikipedia, I also consulted an old textbook of mine from film school called The American Film Industry, the revised edition, edited by two. Tino Balio. And so got some of that information, my information for all this comes from that as well. So technology is changing. People are getting more narrative films. So what are some of the other films going on around this time? I mean, the year before, obviously, um, Trip to the Moon has been stolen, I guess, and copied (laughs) numerous times in America. Yes, yes. Edison's people uh, pirated a bit. But George... Just that, right? Edison never does that for anything else. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But George Melies is still, at this time, making plenty of films. He's made at least 15 (laughs) films this year. (laughs) We made you your filmmaker like, yeah, I made 15 films this year. (laughs) I mean, granted, these are much shorter, and some of them are... Some of them are very short subjects, and some of them are a little bit more elaborate. One of the films he made this year is The Kingdom of the Fairies, which some critics still consider one of his best. Another director I want to point out is actually the director of this film, Edwin S. Porter. He started off his career as an inventor of electrical. He was good good at using machines and things like that, and started working as a projectionist worked with the Edison company who Edison's company was the manufacturing company. They were one of these businesses that ran a lot of the, they made the projectors. So therefore they, they wanted to have the rights to everything related to running their projectors, including the actual making of the films. So at some point uh, he started helping with the artistic making of these things. 
in this year, 1903, he made at least five other films besides this one. The first one's Life of an American Fireman. This is a pretty notable one in film history. It's known for its synthesis of numerous innovations in narrative film. It's long considered very important use of editing. There's some historical debate regarding this. So... The Life of American Firemen kind of shows the, like what it says, a fireman going through his day and stuff. The innovation is in the sense that it shows some simultaneous action. Oh, interesting. Like the firemen outside a burning house, the people inside the burning house. The debate comes in that the copyrighted version of that doesn't have those two scenes cross-cutting. It has them as kind of standalone things. Okay. And there's some debate as to whether Porter... There are later versions of the film where those two scenes are cross-cut. So they oh, trying to figure out whether he had originally yeah. invented it or not. Yeah. Did he plan for it to happen, or did later editors do it okay. in a more conventional way as that game to be known? Yeah. It's unclear. I saw at least one person who speculated that he filmed them this way. He didn't have to film it this way. So all the ingredients were there to do the cross-cutting, and it's possible that Edison was what well, he was much more conservative in how he wanted to do filmmaking. And so he could have, Porter might've been overruled. But anyway, it's still notable for some things like that. Also in this year, Porter made uh, an adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin, obviously a highly abbreviated adaptation because films are still relatively short at this point. And most of it is still pretty primitive, filmed kind of like a stage play. But it was the first American film to use intertitles to introduce each scene. Okay, that's just like the text on the screen? Yes. Okay, yes. And so you mean those two filmed and at least yeah, and three or four others. Yeah. yeah, yeah. At this point, we're not necessarily keeping track of the highest grossing films of the year. Which is most notable at this point. Yeah, but we don't know how much, do we, would we even have any idea how much something like this made? Not not that I can I see. I, I, I didn't really track. see any estimates of this this movie. I mean, this movie, The Great Train Robbery, was a huge financial success by all accounts, but I don't know how much it made in its day. And were there any other important kind of just film things going on at this time? Wikipedia notes a couple of things, and it's interesting in them to see kind of the seeds of future things happening, but also the kind of the the change of some old things. And this year, Thomas Edison demolished America's first movie studio called The Black Maria, which is a fascinating place. It was this, not quite a house, but structure, we'll say, that was all wrapped in black, but you could lift the roof so that you could let light in. Because filming then especially, as in now, but required a lot of light. Mm -hmm. And so you want to have let a lot of light in, but you want a controlled environment for it. So hence... A structure with an openable roof, and the whole thing was actually built on rollers, so you could actually move the whole structure to catch the light, you know, depending on the time of day. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. But their company had built a glass-enclosed studio in 1901, so that made the Black Maria obsolete, and so it was demolished in this year. But more notably for things that would happen later... The businessmen Adolf Zucker and Marcus Lowe partnered with another businessman named Mitchell Mark to expand his chain of movie theaters. This is particularly notable because Zucker would later go on to found Paramount, and Lowe would, his theater chain became known as Lowe's Theaters, and he would help found MGM. Interesting. So that's, yeah, a lot of heavy players right there. A lot of heavy players getting their start in the movie business this year, including the three elder Warner Brothers. They began... Oh, wacko and yakko and dot? <laughs> well, no, no. Oh, okay. The actual humans in this case. Okay. They began in the exhibition business and opened their first theater, The Cascade. And the first films they would invest in would include Edwin S. Porter's films. Nice. So the Warner Brothers would later start their own actual film production in 1910 and formally incorporate as Warner Brothers Pictures in 1923. 
Also of note, Hollywood, California, incorporated as a municipality in this year on November 14th. It would later consolidate with Los Angeles in 1910, but we'll talk more next episode about how it became a center for movie making. It seems like a most auspicious year. Indeed. As a, like, uh, drought. Bill and Ted would say. I'll try to think of their full name. <laughs> there are lots of signs and portents. Yeah, of, there you go. Of there things you go. to come. Of things to come. All right, anyways, so that's the history. That's what's happening in America at the time of this film, The Great Train Robbery. But what is this film, Tim? What is it about besides a train robbery? (laughs) Well, this is an early Western film that begins when a group of bandits force a telegraph operator to signal a train to stop so they can stow on board. The bandits then plunder the train's lockbox before forcing the train to stop so they can loot its passengers. They use the disconnected engine to make a getaway to a forest where their horses are waiting for them. Meanwhile, the telegraph operator's daughter finds him tied up and revives him. He goes and interrupts a local dance party with the news. The locals round up a posse, hunt down the bandits, and kill them. In a final close-up, one of the bandits levels a pistol of the audience and fires. I should note that with these early films, we're not as worried about spoilers because this whole film is like... uh, 10 minutes? 10, 12 minutes, something like that. So go check it out, but you're not going to be watching this purely for storytelling. You're going to be watching this for historical purposes. Yes. So that's why I'm not as worried about sharing spoilers in this one. Of course, this is a silent film. It is in black and white, although there are some hand-colored prints, although I don't think they were necessarily authorized by Porter. This is not the film that I think that format works as well as, say, A Trip to the Moon. Yeah, but that's more fantastical, and the colors add or could add more. Yeah. This one feels grittier as a film, and so mm-hmm. I think it works better in black and white, meaning the screen ratio is the standard box 1.33 by 1. The length is a reel, essentially, 740 feet, because back then you could only really count it by how much film you had, because yeah. the frame rate wasn't standardized yet, as we've mentioned before. But like I said, most uh, versions of it play 10 to 13 minutes. Of course, again, no score came with the film. Music was often played live at the theater. Some big city venues may have had orchestra accompaniments. Smaller venues would have just used a piano. Probably not the organ that sometimes gets thought of when it comes to silent films. Those uh, would come in later in the mid-1910s. All right, so pretty straightforward Western. Okay, so why do we care? I mean, it's just a... 10-minute film about robbing a bank. I mean, a train. (laughs) Well, it was a big success in the day. Wikipedia notes it was played as the headlining attraction in many vaudeville houses. It was later popular at Nickelodeon's. And uh, its massive popularity spawned many imitators at a time when film copyright was rather murky. (laughs) Even Porter himself would go on to spoof this film. uh, Oh, really? Yeah, as uh, with like kids robbing uh, a toy candy shop or something. That's hilarious. (laughs) That's great. But I saw one scholar said it may have had the biggest success of any film made before 1905. Wow. Interestingly, for a long time, there have been myths about this particular movie, about saying it was the first narrative film, it was the first Western, and it's not that. That's uh, that's a little exaggerated. It was interesting, the write-up I read in my 1001 Movies You Need to Watch or whatever. It mentioned that controversy, saying that, well, it might not be in the first Western, but it's probably the first one that made it. It kind of leaned towards still affirming, I guess, some of its Western firstness. I'm sure people are on both sides of that, but it, yeah. it was just interesting. That book was 
kind of old now, so it's been a while, I guess, this controversy. Yeah, I think the controversy has been around for a while. I mean, it's kind of fascinating when you think about, like, on one hand, 120 years is not that long ago, and, like, in the grand scope yeah. of history, you'd think we'd have this information much more documented. The fact that myths can still kind of come up about it is one of those signs that, well, one, as history happens, we don't always are aware of the importance of certain things. And so yeah. memory fades and we have to actually go back and look, well, wait a minute. Were there other narrative films before this? Well, and, and it seems like this time in filmmaking history was very, uh, pun intended, Wild West. Like, yeah. they're just fast and dirty and you're not keeping track of this stuff. You're just doing what, you're making the next one. I yeah. mean, you're making 15, you know. Yeah, you just you just kept you just churn them out, yeah. I mean, you talked about how we've lost a number of films from this era. I was reading about paper prints. Mm-hmm. Certain films from this time period really only exist because they were printed out on paper and entered into the Library of Congress um, oh, as weird. as for their as copyright yeah to protect their copyright. The actual film negatives haven't survived because they just weren't as maintained. Wow! But, be, but because these paper things were preserved somewhere, just put in an office, everyone just forgot about yeah. them. Yeah, we, we still have them. We still have some of these. Again, people just weren't thinking about film longevity back then. They're just thinking about, hey, it's a cool thing when we make money and tell us, well, mainly make money, I think, probably. <laughs> probably, yeah. and, and And cool technology, like we're doing new things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I have seen some people note that uh, the length of it, again, this was a full reel of film, whereas mm-hmm. a lot of films were still uh, very short back then. The fact that it was a full reel of film and was super successful may have paved the way for more of that sort of thing. Okay. Critics have also tended to explain the film's significance, again, because of its wide popularity. And um, again, he's very influential in the the action of this of this story. Yeah, really we're getting more. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Okay, so it was famous at the time. It, whether it was the first or not, it inspired a lot of stuff. Immediately, did it inspire anything like long term? Well, the famous final shot has been directly referenced in Goodfellas, one of Scorsese's films, okay. and the TV show Breaking Bad. It also may have inspired the James Bond gun barrel intro. Okay, okay, which makes sense. If you, and if you're not sure, the, the final shot with the guy pointing a gun at the camera and firing, you've probably seen a picture of this somewhere. Yeah. It gets it gets brought up in a lot of film history things. I was, when we were watching it, I'm like, oh yeah, that shot, I know that one. Yeah, yeah, it's like the a Trip to the Moon had the... The, the moon with the eye, with the rock in the eyeball. Yeah, or, yeah, that's the iconic shot of this. The cowboy shooting a gun at the camera is the iconic shot in this one. There's also a 1978 film with the same name, The Great Train Robbery, starring Sean Connery and uh, directed by Michael Crichton, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, based on a book of his. It is a book of his. That's true. Yeah. I've not read it. I think it's mostly unrelated. The Wikipedia article mentions a couple of shots that are similar or may have been mirroring it, but uh, hard to say. But this movie has also, of course, been inducted in the National Film Registry that happened in 1990 for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. All right, so we know why it's important. I guess the next step is going to figure out what did we think about this. Yes. So, so were you fam- at all familiar with this title before? Yes, I've. It? I mean, I'd heard of it. I didn't know much more, but it's one of those like, oh yeah, the one that's. I knew it was kind of a famous old early movie. Yeah. I, I don't know if I knew as much about it as. 
um, Trip to the Moon, which I didn't know a ton about, but it was in my memory bank somewhere. Sure. Yeah, I had seen this one before in film school. Well, I think I saw this both in college and in film school. Okay. It's, it's one of those, like, again, it's a seminal thing, everyone. It is short, so. It's short. <laughs> why not watch it in class? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So I was familiar with this going into it. So I didn't record an instant reaction to it, but the rest of you did. Yeah, so here they are. All right. First thoughts were, I guess, very action-oriented, very quick, and, uh, I mean, simple, very down-to-earth, very American. Um, I guess those were my initial thoughts. I mostly understood what was going on, except for at the end. I couldn't quite tell whether the robbers were getting their comeuppance or what. Otherwise, yes, pretty straightforward. A train was being robbed. The mixture of pure Gint music with something else all played on piano, at least in this version that we watched. I kept having to tell myself, oh yeah, this was filmed before World War II, so it's really, really old. It looked really old. It's just different. I just kept thinking the whole time I was watching it that it was a glimpse into history. I mean, the costumes were probably not costumes. They were probably what they would have worn at the time. I mean, maybe not. I, I don't know. I don't know what costumes in or what clothing in 1903 would have looked like anyway. But it just was interesting to look at it and think that these were people who lived so long ago. Because most of the movies I'm used to seeing, <laughs> the actors are still alive. It was just interesting that way. So that's what we thought when we watched it most of a week ago. And I guess now having, well, you've seen this obviously at least twice now, three times. Probably, yeah, this is times. probably at least my third time. Okay. But having thought about it, what sticks with us? What what do we think about this movie? What do you think, Tim? I'll let you go first. <laughs> okay. One of the fun things I was thinking about this is comparing it to A Trip to the Moon. I, we don't want to do this sort of comparison too much on the show, but in this case, it's particularly interesting. Because they're both short. They're both about the same time period. And they're both seminal movies in early movies, but they're also very different. They're very different. They're different mentalities, different creators going on. Like we said, this one is more American as opposed to it feels more grounded. Yes, it feels very, I guess, realistic in some ways. There's a realism to this that Trip of the Moon doesn't even try. (laughs) Yes. I mean, this one, for one thing, it's all, well, there might be some sets, but they're not like fanciful sets like A Trip to the Moon yeah. has. There's actual location shots, which A Trip to the Moon, I don't think has any location shots. So like actual forests, they're actually on a train at some point. I think the I think the dangerous suspense is much more real in this than Trip to the Moon. Because Trip to the Moon feels like a fairy tale or a dream or it's more surreal. Yes. And yes. this is, I mean, it's short and it's old, but it also moves. It has a a strong forward drive. Yeah, which I Trip the Moon wanders. Yeah, it's it's a dream. It's a fantastical yeah. experience. This is like no, there are guys that are robbing this train. They're killing people. We gotta. Yeah, yeah. There's there's death. There's explosions. There's horses. There's a chase of sorts. Mm-hmm. There's a posse that's rounded up. There's and, a sad girl. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. And interestingly, there are special effects in this movie, but their purpose is completely different than in A Trip to the Moon. A Trip to the Moon special effects kind of stare you in the face. Yes. Now, they're very distinct. They're you're like, 
this is a effect. Again, George Méliès was a magician, an illusionist. Yes. He wanted to like wow you. This one, all the effects are meant to essentially make it more realistic. Yeah, like hide the the falseness of certain things. So. Two examples of actual, like, where they use a mats to combine two different types of footage. Okay. One example is when they're in the train station, and you can see the train coming in through the window. Yes. That'd be, like, a different... That's a separate shot that they're using Which kind was of picture in picture. pretty well done. I mean, it was... Pretty clean for, especially that long ago. Yeah, yeah. And the other one, I think, would have been on the train in the room where they get the lockbox. They have the, the door open. Oh, yeah. And you can see the landscape going by. It just makes it look a lot more energetic and action-oriented. You know, the, things are moving. There's always something going on. Yeah. People coming out of the train. They're on the horse. I mean, there's a lot of... A lot of movement. There's not much still shot. Well, I mean, the camera still. Yeah, for most of it. I mean, interestingly, there are a couple shots, and I didn't even realize this at first because this is one of those things that you just modern filmmaking we're so used to it just kind of goes by you but there are two shots where the camera actually pans okay like i think they're both when the uh the bandits are making their escape okay like it pans as they're leaving the train going into the woods and then like when they're in the woods finding their, their horses and moving again it feels like a very subtle thing but for a time when a lot of films were really just you just set the camera yeah. in one place and let the people on stage do their even, action. Even Osfratu, you basically just sat there the whole time, didn't it? Most Pro- time, yeah, yeah, probably, pretty much. So I mean, it, and it's a very subtle thing, but yeah, it helps helps to keep the pace going. Yeah. So and then I guess the other thing that's besides this sort of very American action oriented practical. I mean, it's a very down to earth movie. Yeah. And then you have this famous shot that the whole movie ends, and then. There's just a shot of this bandit pointing the gun at the audience and shooting. Which has really nothing to do with the story itself. I guess it's kind of a shock, kind of shock value, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's one of those like, oh, wow, this is something I've never seen before. It's like yeah. shock and awe sort of like hit you over the head sort of moments. And interestingly, I read in a couple places that some of the promotional things that what they would give the theater owners as kind of an advertisement for like, hey, this is our show, and they would detail all the yeah. stuff. This shot, they said, that could be played at the beginning or the end. I of read it. that, yeah, uh, and it, which is interesting. You would think, well, why, why would you give them that option? But I guess if you know your audience, maybe some people would really want to be hooked at the very beginning of it. Or the flip side, keeping it at the end makes it this like coda that, like, again, the thing that will really jolt people out of their seats mm-hmm. and keep them talking. I remember seeing some people claim that audiences would duck at, after yeah. this sort of thing. I'm not sure that's really true. I've also heard things that like early audiences would, uh, if they were were watching movie of like a an ocean wave crashing, like they would jump to get out of the way yeah. so they wouldn't get wet. Mm, that sounds again a bit like a myth. Yeah, even people who are experiencing a new technology can usually kind of differentiate yeah. what's real and what's not. So, uh, but it was still again. Most people don't get to see a gun pointed at them and, <laughs> yeah. and fired. So it's still effective and it's memorable, even uh, even if it's not narratively coherent. I saw one person say on Wikipedia, oh yeah, film historian Pamela Hutchison says, it's an especially violent act, both in real terms and cinematic ones. The narrative momentum of the film is cast aside and then the fourth wall of the screen is broken by his gaze, only to be further ruptured by his bullets. Place of the opening of the film might act as a trailer for the shoot 'em up action to come. As a coda, it's a warning to the audience that it's a wild world out there <laughs> and the violence continues even after the train robber case has been closed. I like that. That's an interesting explanation of it. Yeah. So I think that our thoughts on 
what we noticed mm-hmm. in the movie. So we always end this section with some questions. Yes. So have gone off that. One of my questions, it's kind of small, I'm just curious, Tim, if you were one of the theater managers, where would you put it? Would Ooh. you put it the front or the back and why? I, I would keep it at the back. I like the idea of it being something that people are going to talk about afterwards. Okay. Uh, like just kind of that jolt to their memory that they'll remember it for longer, I think, because of it. So you come back to the movie because that last scene just stuck with you. Yeah. Yeah. I w- and I want people to spread the word of mouth like, wow, you got to see this thing. I think that's good because my, my thought process, I'm like, well, maybe put the beginning just to get them like shock them into it and they're on their seat. But I think your decision is probably actually more effective for spreading it. By word of mouth. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So a quick question, but I thought it was interesting because I had read that too beforehand. Yeah, I can see the value of it both ways, but that's, I think it would be the way I lean. Okay, so my question for you, Nick, mm-hmm. I find this interesting that one of the first famous filmed westerns is basically one of, I mean, we focus on bandits from, yep. from most of it. Yep. What do you think that says about people, you could apply this to America or just people in general. And about like our, the bad guys? Our, yeah, our fascination with outlaws. What's up with that? I... Yeah, it's interesting because we do that routinely. You know, Ocean's Eleven, like, yeah, let's be the thieves. You know, it's just, I think it's just this idea of the danger. I don't think it's that people want to be outlaws. I think they just like the idea of, like, what would it be like to do this thing that I know I won't ever do? Is mm. that sort of like that thrill? Like, how do I how do I get a bit part of that thrill? Yeah, um, from a safe place. From a safe place, yeah, because, I mean— and the most cynical reading is that we all like to rebel, that we're, you know, we just like, we hate laws, don't tell me what I can't do, and that we want to live that way. But I think the best reading of it is just, there's something thrilling about doing something outside than what everyone expects you to do. Yeah. To not conform. Like I said, we spend the most time with the bandits and going through the whole robbery process, but yeah, they do all get killed by the end of the movie. And the movie, I mean, the movie's pretty neutral just generally. It's largely reporting, but yeah. it never... Like some more modern movies never glorify them at all. Yeah. And again, I think back then it's also this like electrocuting the elephant is just let's put you in a situation that you're not going to be in. Yeah. Or at least you certainly hope not. You hope you're not the outlaw. Yeah. And again, I think narratively it's much more just has that excitement that like, oh, you know, it's right. Being the good guy sometimes not have quite the same, especially have 15 minutes and no words, Uh the same visceral reaction. That's a good point. And it's fascinating, like, yeah, this is really nothing new for human nature. Like, I mean, Westerns had certainly already been a thing in, like, magazines mm-hmm. and pulp books before this. And before it was Westerns, it was pirates, where they yep. were a very high subject of interest during the, the mid-early 1800s. And with, with Americans, too. Uh, the Americans, like, I'm not one. With us, America. <laughs> um, I think there's a sense of freedom. You know, like, I am... Not bound. I can do what I want, mm-hmm. which is both. Uh, there's a good version of that and a bad version of that, and cross the line. But yeah, all right. Do you have a second question? For I me? do. It's, it's only a little silly, but it, I found it interesting that you know the music they're playing is in the Hall of the Mountain King, and it just was a strange choice. Uh-huh. At so, least in the version we watched. The, yeah, on, on again, YouTube. Yeah, they could play all sorts of things. Yeah, but okay, Tim, pick something that would have to be played on the piano during this. Movie again. We, I, if you want to take it serious, you can. But if you want to just play, you know, okay, um, a um, piano version of. Let me think. I'm trying to think. Crab does rave. It, you say does it have to be something that's of the period? That no, no. Ab- you can do modern. You can do. You know, if you want to play, okay. hit me, baby, one more time on piano. Um, okay, 
I had a similar question for you, but I was going to re- relegate it to the dance hall. So I'll I'll uh, I'll, okay. let, I'll let you come up with an answer. Dance hall, okay. And, okay. And, and I'm going to score the actual robbery itself. Let's put it to. I want to see some like rock version, like Trans Siberian Orchestra, do a version of the train robbery. Oh, but it's got to be on piano. Oh, does it have to be on piano? Yeah, you still got to have piano. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, you can play a Trans Siberian Orchestra movie uh, song on a piano if you want, but it's got to be piano. Okay, but it has to be an actual song. I just I can make up someone to a band to play something for it. Yeah. Okay. In that case, play Tetris on the piano. I don't care. <laughs> Uh, the soundtrack for Sunset Riders. Okay. The, the, the video game. <laughs> nice. Which is our Weekly Hijack intro some, or it at is. times. Yes. It, it is. We do use it for the Weekly Hijack, basically for our special episodes, the beginning or end of a series. Ride em, cowboy! So, so I can do the dance hall. Yes. Do you know what the crab rave is? I'm not sure. It's a, it's a YouTube video with all these crabs that are raving. It's, it's this fun song that my <laughs> nephew introduced me to. Okay. Dance hall has to play the crab rave. Okay. Okay. I'm going to have to look this up You got to look now. this up. Maybe you can just outro us with some <laughs> crab rave here. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think it would be fun. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I would like to see that. Tim, I guess here's the real question. Did we like this movie? You know, I enjoy it for, again, for historical value, but I do think it is a fairly watchable movie. There, I don't remember if it was Janelle or Natasha. I think it was Janelle who said that there are some moments that are a little confusing. The business about what the bandits are doing in the Telegraph office, I, I don't think is immediately clear. I got some of that info from descriptions yeah. of what's going on because we don't know how a rail stop works anymore. Yeah. We don't recognize exactly what they're doing. And basically that they had to signal, the Telegraph guy had to signal the train to stop yeah. and tell them to put on water so they could still on board it's not clear unless you read a description of yeah. that but other than that like you said it moves i think it's fairly watchable again watchable for historical reasons but i don't think you're going to be bored watching it no I, I thought the same thing and i think one more comparison to a trip to the moon i think trip to the moon's a more impressive film but i think this one's the more watchable film hmm. for for anyone mm-hmm. because trip to the moon it takes you out to be like, what in the world is happening? And, and it has this yeah. surreal, but this is like, this is just a normal narrative. And it, yeah, it moves. It has, a, it has a great sense of pacing. And it's, you know, it's not very long, but I think if you have any interest in movies at all, I say, yeah, go watch it. It's completely worth it. Agreed. I guess then we'll bow out after this first episode of this season. Yay, we made it. Yay. So if you haven't, please subscribe to us in your podcatcher of choice. Stitcher, Potify. 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 Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. 
And we'd love you to spread the news to others because we think this podcast is really informative and fun. Indeed. You can visit us at derailedtrainsofthought.com to our website, see our past episodes, see our other podcasts like our mothership. Derailed Trains of Thought, where we talk about all manner of storytelling. For the creator and the consumer. Indeed. All right, Tim, what do we have up next episode? Next time we go to 1913. And I'll, I'll be honest, I had a tricky time picking out an iconic movie for this year. But I wound up going with Mabel's New Hero because it features several silent film comedians of the era. And uh, I wanted to talk about them. So. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Until next time, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.